This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. One could argue that there is no greater cost-effective preventive health intervention than immunizations. It's estimated that they prevent between 2 and 3 million deaths per year worldwide. They also help limit the development of antibiotic resistance by preventing the need for antibiotics. Yet there are individuals who falsely preach that vaccines cause serious health problems, and this results in confusion and skepticism in the public regarding vaccine safety. Today's topic of discussion is immunizations and the anti-vaccine movement. Our guest today is Dr. Greg Poland, an internist in the Division of General Internal Medicine and expert in the field of immunizations. He's the editor of the journal Vaccines and chair of the World Vaccine Congress. Greg, thank you for joining us It's today. a pleasure to be here, Daryl. Well, let's, before we get into the anti-vaccine issue, let's talk a little bit about immunizations and vaccines. Um, they are a substance that are injected, so there are some true risks, but what are the true risks of vaccines? That's a great question because there's so many myths about that. Uh, in fact, our group has tried very hard to study serious reactions to vaccines. They are so rare, we cannot adequately statistically power a study to do so. You have to do it at the level of Medicare or you know databases of that size. Um, so when you look at what would be the most common serious risk of a vaccine, it would probably be anaphylaxis. And that occurs about one in a million or less. So that gives you some idea yeah. of just how rare these are. And of course, anaphylaxis is something easily treated, assuming you're you know, at a medical facility. Sure. The rest of it tends to be things like uh, sore arm, low-grade fever, that sort of thing, spontaneously resolves transient symptoms. Then there are a few that are deadly side effects. For example, uh, I took care of, uh, well, I barely got to take care of her. She was transferred to us essentially dead, but a woman who had gotten yellow fever vaccine, and she had a very rare complication called viciotropic disease, where the vaccine virus propagates out of control throughout the visceral organs, and she died. Mm. Now, that's so rare that we can't really put an estimate that's very confident around it. Mm -hmm. Well, do vaccines provide better immunity than the natural infection? I would not say better immunity, uh, and it does depend on the disease that we're talking about. For example, if you get uh, measles disease, you're protected for life, assuming your immune system stays intact. Um, when you talk about influenza, well, it protects you against that strain. The difficulty is this. In almost all those cases, the disease is far riskier than any vaccine risk that we would have. And this is the dilemma for a lot of people. There's no medical treatment. There's no medical preventive. In fact, there's no decision we make in life that doesn't have risk in the equation. And what I tell people is what you really want to do is you want to balance risks and benefits. That's what that nexus we would call wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. You and I do it and our listeners do that every day in their medical practices. We're trying to balance risk and benefit. 
And when you do that, and there have been formal quantitative uh, papers that have done that, it always falls way over on the side of vaccines. Mm -hmm. Okay. Next question. I assumed that we can do this because when I order vaccines, uh, my nurses give the ones I order, but can we give multiple immunizations at one time? Absolutely. Um, Some people, and you'll hear them say, particularly in a pediatric practice, uh, uh, they can't, quote, take that many vaccines. Well, some interesting studies have been done. When you give uh, the childhood series, and there are points in the childhood series where they're getting four or five you know, different vaccines, which seems like a lot, right, mm-hmm. if you're the parent holding that child down. Well, think about that. You're giving six to 100 antigens within that combination of vaccines. The estimate is when you get influenza, for example, you're being exposed uh, to about uh, 1,200 to 1,500 antigens, something like that. That would be true of most infections. And that's not even talking about the millions of bacteria and viruses that we're exposed to every day in the course of normal living. So there actually is not um, a scientific concept of an antigenic burden that's too high in regards to a vaccine. Okay, good. How about giving immunizations during pregnancy? This is a tough one because culturally, um, all of us have grown up in an era where we kind of say, don't give anything to a pregnant woman. Well, that's misinformed. Um, In fact, there are specific recommendations to give some vaccines to women when they're pregnant. An example would be influenza vaccine. Another example would be TDAP, the acellular pertussis vaccine. There is no risk associated with that just because you're pregnant any more than if you were not pregnant. The risks are identical. But the benefits to that baby at birth are tremendous, particularly in the cases of things like influenza and pertussis that are almost ubiquitous. I know you're a big... uh proponent on annual influenza vaccines. I've heard your presentations are quite <laughs> quite dramatic. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the uh, influenza vaccine. Yeah, This comes up often. Uh, I see a patient, ask them if they receive the annual influenza vaccine in the fall, and they said no. So should they be given it after the peak flu season, like you know, in the spring, is it still some benefit to them? Absolutely, Daryl. And that's a great uh, question. I mean, as we're speaking, it's the the very beginning of May. I continue to give influenza vaccines until the date of expiration, which is usually early uh, June time period. I do that for two reasons. We do see a tail end of influenza infections, particularly in travelers. So they may be going into the Southern Hemisphere where they're just starting their influenza season. And the second reason is an interesting one. The data show that if you, if you can uh, convince somebody that is generally reluctant to get a flu vaccine and they get it, of course they have nothing bad happen. They are more likely to get it next year when the benefit's even greater because they'll get it earlier sure. in the season. Now, a common thing that you hear is, uh, and I know you and I have heard it till, uh, till we dream about it sometimes is, well, doc, I got the flu vaccine, but I got the flu anyway. So uh, a couple of things about that. One is 
often what a patient means when they say they, quote, got the flu is not influenza. Much of that is not influenza. The second thing, and this is actually uh, an important nuance, even for other physicians who don't know this. In fact, I just published a paper, an expert review of vaccines, if anybody's interested in flu vaccine failure. So let's take this year as an example. So this year, about 40 million people in the U.S. were ill with influenza, about 60,000 deaths, and I think about 600,000 hospitalizations that can be accounted for. That's a tremendous toll of disease. Now, the season started off with as a primarily H1N1 season. The vaccine was very well matched with that. It then transitioned into an H3N2 season, poor match of the vaccine. And the tail end of this season has mostly been influenza B, and the vaccine is well matched with that. So depending on what phase of the season is, because we often get different circulating viruses, which vaccine you got and what time of the season you got it, you might think the vaccine was great or that it didn't work well. Mm. But, you know, even if it failed with H3N2, I shouldn't say fail, reduced efficacy, you were still protected against the other three strains in mm -hmm. the vaccine. Well, people are interesting. I remember it's probably about five, maybe six years ago, uh, there was a shortage yeah. of influenza yeah. vaccine. And patients were coming out of the woodwork saying, you know, please <laughs> give it to me. You know, I'll pay extra for it. Yeah. They were even arranging trips to Canada. I remember where they that. Had some. Yeah. And then the next year when it was abundant, you had to twist their arm to get it. <laughs> no, it, it is a funny aspect of human nature. You're right. Well, how how good are we as healthcare providers in getting the influenza vaccine? Is there any data on now they they require it here at Mayo, but yeah. How about other places where it's not required? How yeah. do we do as healthcare providers? So full disclosure here, Daryl, I was the one that uh, raised the issue at the CDC meeting, and eventually um, they did accept the recommendation that influenza immunization should be required for healthcare workers. And the reason that I've pushed that, published that, um, worked with professional societies and multiple hospital systems to get that implemented is we particularly have a greater duty. It's not just for our own health, but the health of the patients we see around us who are older, immunocompromised, at, at lung disease, et cetera. We can unknowingly, you don't have to be symptomatic to spread influenza virus. We can unknowingly spread it and cost them their lives. Nonetheless, this has been a difficult thing. You're right, it's required here at Mayo. Uh, other health systems uh, have varying degrees. You have to wear a mask if you don't accept it, or uh, you can sign a philosophical uh, exemption form or something like that. I, I don't think that that uh, squares with the ethics and the, and, and the morals that we should bring into practice. We are privileged to take care of patients, and we should, and I did, pledge first do no harm. Mm -hmm. I don't know that they take that uh, pledge anymore. I'm not sure, but uh, influenza vaccine is, is one of those. Now, where the dilemma occurs is that um, you will have maybe one uh, case of GBS in association with every million to two million doses of flu vaccine. Um, 
whether it's actually causative is harder to tell, but in association with that. And each year we do have varying efficacy. But I often tell people, you know, you might have had some symptoms, but you didn't get hospitalized. You didn't end up in a ventilator with pneumonia and you didn't die. Mm -hmm. The people that are dying on ventilators are most often the people who were not immunized. Do we know if healthcare providers are better than the general public? They are. Um, they are better. In fact, in the U.S., the rate among healthcare workers is up around the 75 to 80 plus uh, percentage last time I looked at it. Whereas in the general public, if you look at 65 and older, it's about 60, 70 percent, something like that. So we're a little better, but nowhere it's near what we should be. Still disappointing it to is. hear that it's uh, not it closer is. to 100 percent. A lot of misperceptions, even among healthcare providers, about flu vaccine. Do you care for athletes and other active patients? Engage with sports medicine experts November 8th and 9th, 2019 at the Mayo Clinic Symposium on Sports Medicine. Participate in cutting-edge diagnostic and treatment strategies through live demonstrations and expert case presentations. To learn more, visit ce.mayo.edu slash sportsmedicine2019. All right, let's talk about this anti-vaccination movement. It's yeah. just... Uh, well, I think the the measles issue has really brought it to light. But when did this anti-vaccination movement start? This is really interesting. And uh, I published in the New England Journal of Medicine an article called The Age-Old Struggle Against the Anti-Vaccinationists. The first vaccine that we had was smallpox vaccine. Even back then, in the U.S. and elsewhere, vehement mm. opposition to the vaccine. It just seems to be something encoded in some people to resist putting something or injecting something into their body. This is, and, and one thing we should acknowledge, this is true, um, people will accept that when they're sick, but they're more hesitant when you're gonna give a healthy person right. something to prevent something that may or may not occur in the future, right? And so we never see the successes. If it's successful, nothing happens, right. <laughs> except for one thing. We've begun to see, these measles outbreaks are a good example. Measles was declared eliminated in the U.S. in 2000. Here we are with more cases than we've had in the last 25 years, over 700 cases, 13 outbreaks across 22 states. I mean, this is astounding that this could happen in the second decade of the 21st century. Right. So it's, some, it's a problem that will always be with us. I think what has made it substantially worse is, uh, number one, the Internet and the ease of spreading misinformation. Uh, and, the, and the second is we've sort of become this post-fact society where science, for example, is no longer viewed as a valid way of knowing over and they el people elevate their own individual reason above that and that's usually irrational right or if it comes from a movie star it's got to be valid yeah, yeah yeah well you brought up the measles issue and uh, i am now starting to see patients who are 
asking if they're at risk yeah. for getting measles. Uh, they don't remember what they received in childhood for immunizations. They assume they got it, but they don't know. Uh, what should we be telling them? That's a really good question because it's uh, it, it, it strikes at the heart of what do we do with the patient in front of us. Here's some good guidelines. If they were um, born in 1957 or earlier, they can depend on the fact that they had the disease, whether they remember it or their parents remember it or not. They were exposed. Every birth cohort developed measles. Hmm. It's that trans, it is the most transmissible disease we know in humans. Um, so that's number one. Now, if they were born uh, between 57 and 68, it's very likely they got a dose of a killed vaccine that's no, no longer available and which did not offer immunity. If they were born after 68, up until 1989, they only got one dose of the current vaccine. So if you are a healthcare provider, and our listeners are, and their office staff, if you work with measles virus, if you're traveling to areas or live with their, in areas where there are measles outbreaks, you need a second dose. Or if you didn't get a first one and you were born after 57, you need one. And in fact, you need two. Um, in outbreak areas, what they're doing temporarily because of the outbreaks is saying we give a dose at six months, six months of age to a child, at 12 months, and then again at school entry, three doses. The normal schedule is two, 12 months and school entry. So if we have a patient who doesn't know, but they are worried that they could get it, um, the numbers that we have are still rather small, yes. documented measles yes. cases, but it wouldn't hurt them if they really want to be protected? Yeah, I think, I think you got two options there. One is you could test the antibody. Mm -hmm. um, depends on where you are. Um, around here, that would cost about 150 bucks to test that. Or you can give a $30 dose of, no. of vaccine. And as long as they're not pregnant or immunocompromised, no harm whatsoever. If they're immune, doesn't cause any problem. If they're not immune, you save them. <laughs> Good to know. All right, let's spend the rest of the time. I'm going to pretend like I'm a patient. Sure. And I have concerns about giving myself or my child an immunization. These are myths. And I want you to let me know how you would respond as the healthcare provider. Let me, and let me just add one thing before we get into sure. that because uh, it uh, crossed my mind. The topic you're asking me about is so important that for the first time this year, WHO put in their top 10 global health threats, vaccine hesitancy. Mm. Isn't yeah, that remarkable? It is amazing. All right. First one. Vaccines don't have adequate research to show that they're safe. It's a good question. And um, there's a kernel uh, there's a sliver of truth in there in this regard. Before a vaccine can be licensed and marketed in the U.S., it has been tested in tens of thousands of people. As best we know, it's safe. And then the FDA insists on what are called phase four studies, so post-licensure marketing studies. Here's the occasional dilemma. Let's say, for example, uh, rotavirus vaccine was tested in 60 or 70,000 kids. What happens to a side effect that occurs one in, say, 300,000? You might not detect it until it's mm -hmm. released, and that's why those post-marketing studies. So 
very rare things like side effects that would occur one in a million, it would take a while before we would detect that. One in 10 million, we'll probably never know. Yeah. And we just accept that because we know the benefits are far greater than that. Well, it's like new medications. I've got colleagues who only prescribe new medications because they have no adverse effects. Yeah, that's right. At least for the first two years. <laughs> All right, this one I hadn't heard before. Vaccines contain antifreeze. I have no idea where that one came from. There is no antifreeze in any vaccine manufactured in the U.S. All right. <laughs> vaccines contain sodium hydroxide or lye and hydrochloric acid. Another one. I've never heard that at all. All right. <laughs> Here's one I have heard. Vaccines contain mercury. Yeah, this is a good uh, question because we have to distinguish between ethyl mercury and methyl mercury. So uh, the form that's put into the vaccine is ethyl. It does not have the harm that methyl mercury would have. Why was mercury ever put in a vaccine? Basically because it's a bacteriostatic agent. So up until fairly recently, all vaccines came in multi-dose vials. So you can imagine, if you're going to put that needle in there five times, 20 times, you have to have a bacteriostatic agent in there or you're mm -hmm. likely to contaminate sure. it. Now they mostly come in single dose, so they have eliminated mercury, more on the aesthetic, not because of any harm. Have, uh, you know, we live in Minnesota, have one serving of fish, you get more mercury than from all of the vaccines. <laughs> All right, here's a good one. Vaccines contain aluminum, which has been linked to Alzheimer's disease. So uh, the first part of the, of the question is, is right. There are n a number of vaccines that contain alum or aluminum as an adjuvant, as a way of stimulating immune. The second part is not at all clear that uh, aluminum is the cause of Alzheimer's disease. Um, the best we could say is there are amyloid plaques and neurofibrillatory, you know, kind of tangles that seem to be pathologically or on pathophysiology associated with Alzheimer's. And you can detect aluminum in any tissue of any animal, uh, at least current uh, day living animal or human. That does not mean cause and effect. And I know of no data in fact, there are some studies that have been done ad addressing and debunking that myth. Yeah, and this came out uh, years ago, too, when they uh, discovered there was aluminum in uh, deodorants. Yes, and soft and drinks. And, yeah, yeah. And, and they were, oh my gosh, we're all going to get Alzheimer's disease. There's, <laughs> there's no correlation. Um, all right, this is an interesting one. Vaccine-preventable diseases are a part of normal childhood, and it's better to have the disease than become immune through vaccines. Again, it's sort of a mixed question. Um, are, are vaccine preventable diseases a part of normal childhood? In the absence of vaccines, yes. <laughs> so you and I grew up where that was a uh, almost kind of a rite of passage, right? I remember having measles. I remember having rubella. There were even measles parties, I believe. Yeah, yeah you're Somebody absolutely had, right. Or chicken pox chicken parties. parties yeah. They did both, yes. Neighbors were invited. In fact, believe it or not, Daryl, up till recently on eBay, you could buy a chicken pox lollipop. <laughs> I don't think it would even work, but you know that's now been taken off. But uh, you could you could do that. Um, in terms of is it better to have disease than vaccine? The answer would be yes if the disease were entirely benign. Yeah. But none of the diseases against which we have vaccines are benign diseases. 
Well, here's what I know the answer to, but I'll let you answer it anyway. Yeah. Influenza is only risky if you're old and frail. That's false. So, for example, um, the risk of death in a healthy pregnant woman who gets influenza is about three to five fold higher than in non-pregnant women of the same age. People who smoke, have asthma, have a variety of comorbidities, diabetes, their risk of death or pneumonia is considerably higher than an otherwise normal person. Now, when you look at otherwise normal people, the risks are concentrated in two age groups, the very young and the older adult, as you mentioned. And, and importantly, and uh, I know, Daryl, you and I both use these in our practices, and I'd encourage all of our listeners, there are two, some would argue even three vaccines specifically made for the older immunosenescent right. adult, and those would be preferable to use. Yeah. Finally, the grandpappy of all myths. Measles vaccine causes autism. Oh, yeah. Well, our listeners can't see that I don't have any hair because I've pulled it out. <laughs> but in <laughs> uh, 19, I think it was 98, Andrew Wakefield published a paper in The Lancet. That paper has subsequently been retracted. He was stripped of his medical license when it was found that the data were fraudulent and fraudulently derived. Nonetheless, this really captured the attention of the media, celebrities, um, and, and others who have fanned this into a, you know, a bonfire. What can we say to counter that? There have been over 25 studies, I think, across two decades in 10 different countries, all showing the same thing, absolutely no link. The latest study just came out from a, a population study in Denmark where they studied just under 700,000 kids found no link. Amazing. Sounds like we need a stupid vaccine. <laughs> you know, uh, maybe one hint to give to our, um, to our listeners. My daughter's a psychologist, and she's published on what she calls the preferred cognitive styles and decision-making model. And what she says, and she's on to something here. In fact, she did a study showing it here at Mayo Clinic. Our job is to understand the preferred cognitive style or the way our patient tends to make decisions and adapt our method of education to that patient's style. And I think that's been really helpful. Yeah. We've been discussing immunizations and the anti-vaccine movement with immunization expert Dr. Greg Poland from the Mayo Clinic. Greg, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful discussion. Well, it was a pleasure to be here. Great thank to see you. you again. Important topic. It is. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.